Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Christians for thousands of years have gone on and on about. So why on earth would you need to even do a whole talk on having loyalty, fidelity? I love that word, fidelity. It's a it's kind of almost like a marriage term, isn't it? It's a beautiful relational term. Good choice, Tim, when he gave me that title. Having fidelity to this book. Why would we even need to think about that, right? If you Christians believe that this book is in some ways a kind of divinely given thing, why on earth would you ever need to even think about having closeness to it, cherishing it, having fidelity to it? Well, and I think one question that's related to it that I want to bring out right at the beginning of today that I think is really important and I think is a key reason why sometimes we, we struggle to have the level of fidelity to it that we kind of would want is actually the issue of authority. That popular topic in America and the UK at the moment, authority. Because bear with me with the logic. You see, I think one of the major reasons that I, maybe you, don't always have as much fidelity or loyalty to this book is because I don't know whether I actually always believe it has the authority that deep down probably I should have. I think if we, let's put it the other way around, if someone has loyalty, sorry, authority in your life, the greater authority someone has, the more naturally you, you tend to have great loyalty to them, right? You might grow up with a parental figure that you really respect. And as a child, particularly, they have tremendous authority in your life. And so it's actually pretty easy to have great loyalty and closeness because of the level of authority that that person has in your life. You even kind of see it in a kind of slightly humorous way, you know, in the movies when the police are like interviewing someone and uh, they're like, come on, give us the name of your, your, your boss. And they're like, are you joking? Do you have any idea what that guy could do to me? You're just the police. You can't protect me. And what they're actually saying is the authority of this, this person I work through or work for is so much greater than you. My loyalty <laughs> is here, right? And that's a kind of dark version. But the Bible, the reason I think, and this is the central idea I want to work with today, I think a major reason we can sometimes back off from real loyalty and closeness to the Bible is, uh, is because deep down we're not as convinced that it has the kind of authority that sometimes um, I think we should have. So I want to look at this question today's fidelity, but I mentioned right at the beginning the kind of the sister topic of authority because I don't think you can really understand the movements of our hearts and our minds with regard fidelity without actually realizing the issue kind of underneath the issue 
The real issue, I think, is authority. And I just want to state the obvious. Just be cognizant of the fact that most of us struggle with authority. Okay? Um, most of us think that to have freedom, we must have very little or no authority over us. Most of us, and we live in an age where, you know, the stripping of historic authority figures has never been more pronounced. Parents, teachers, police, politicians, pastors. We live in a time where generally, more than ever, when we think authority, I bet even if I say that word to you, authority, you probably feel a bit heavy and think, oh my gosh, thanks Tom, I want to be uplifted. But this is so important because although the Bible does speak against tyranny, which is a really bad use of authority, that Jesus models glorious submission to authority. You, can't get, you cannot get around that. And invites us as fallen, broken people into trusting him into a new life of submission to authority, to God, and the things that he has put around us. That's the real core question. But if we don't understand that, you know, fidelity to Scripture is, is, is in many ways deeply connected with the issue of having authority over us, and all of us struggle with that, okay? Tom Shaw, top of the list, then I think we won't get to the root of it. We'll just have a polite conversation. Whereas actually, I think this is a core thing going on in our souls. So does that make sense? Yeah, I hope that's relatively clear. I want to look at three questions today. Number one, why we don't have fidelity or loyalty to Scripture. Number two, why we should have fidelity to Scripture. And number three, how can we have some fidelity to Scripture? Um, okay, so let's dive in. And today we'll probably have a little bit more of a slightly lectury type feel. I hope that's okay. I tend to be a big heart guy. I'm sure I'll get excited at some point, don't worry. But, I, but with a subject like this, it's really important that, that no one tries to emotionally manipulate us into just having an emotional experience. Because I think it's a really huge topic. And I don't want to patronize anyone. I want us to think clearly, um, but also appropriately feel once we're kind of convinced of things or not. Okay? And this is just my personal view. And I know it's a thorny big thing. So in you know, 30 minutes, we can only do a little bit of this pie. But I'll do my best to, to serve us today. So first of all, why don't we have fidelity to Scripture, Tom? And I've obviously mentioned my own personal reasons that I often think, you know, some of the just the big topics of this book lead us to think, oh, oh gosh, I do love Jesus, I love the Bible, but those things are pretty hard to get my head round, yeah? Living in San Francisco, particularly in the 21st century. But I think there are probably five main categories of human in this world um, that when we think about fidelity to Scripture, uh, you'll probably see yourself on one of these kind of categories on a sliding scale of fidelity and loyalty to Scripture. Okay, the first two are probably people who would say, I don't have a Christian worldview. The next three are those who probably would say, I do have a Christian worldview. Okay, let's quickly whip through them. First of all, then, I would say those who would say, no fidelity to the Bible as it's bad and it's bonkers. 
Okay, doesn't need much explanation. A lot of the, like, the new atheists of Christopher Hitchin or Richard Dawkins would be just famous examples of people who would say, yeah, I, this book, I have absolutely zero loyalty towards Tom <laughs> because, because not only do I not believe in God, but also this book is, it is actually um, morally dangerous it's not, it's not morally neutral, Tom. It's very morally dangerous. And it's just crazy, you know? Um, it's full of crazy things. It's written, written by lots of different authors over hundreds of years. Like, why? It's cra- I don't believe in God. Why on earth would I have any fidelity to this book? Um, in the US, you probably may know this, but a, a nation that prides itself on, on, on having a Christian sort of heritage and, and uh, constitution. We won't get, <laughs> as we talk about the 4th of July, we'll just keep on the, uh, <laughs> keep on topic. Um, even here, in this place that really overtly tries to, in many ways, historically build with a Christian foundation, you don't need me to tell you that that is shifting and changing at a, an extraordinary rate. If you keep any, any, any you know, look on the, uh, on the news, I was sent from uh, Winnie, Two weeks ago, many of you know Winnie, on the BBC News, it was reporting that in a school in Utah, the Bible has been completely banned now uh, in Salt Lake City County because it's, it's seen as vulgar and violent, that parts of the Bible are both those things. And honestly, if you look at this book as a historic document, it is. I mean, just to state the obvious, there's a huge amount of violence in it. And if you don't believe in a God who is throughout this book, ultimately trying to communicate the goodness of God, and you just focus on the judgment, I, it's not entirely logically coherent, incoherent to, to say that. The, you know, I tr- <laughs> oh, lived in Visalia for two years, and I remember going, oh, we should, we should listen to the Bible every night as a family. If you try doing Genesis with your family, and you've got small kids, you're like, whoa! <laughs> la, 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 la. Just do it. If you read it as an adult, you don't pick it up. When you read it with kids, it's like R-rated. I mean, uh, you know what happens in this book, right? It's not like some little, like, you know, Enid Blyton book. It's this shocking, gr- gr- earthy... Anyway, I'm getting off topic. You get the point. So <laughs> in Texas, in a public library recently, they've banned the Bible. In Kansas City, there's, there's a big push right now to get the Bible out of various public libraries there as well. And it's coming from this view that, no, the Bible, as I put here, is, is, is bad, it's morally bad, and it's bonkers, okay? Second view, and you may have that view here, and you're so very welcome, and I hope in some ways I'm demonstrating some real sort of sympathy towards, uh, I think that is actually, there's, there's, some, there's, there's some logical t- uh, truth to that, if, I'm saying, if, if you understand what I'm saying. Secondarily, uh, the second main camp of, of non-Christians were probably those who would be um, who would say, "I don't have fidelity to the Bible. I'm not loyal to it, loyal to it, but I think it's actually positive." So this is really interesting. And actually, Scott and I have been in a book group for three years together. I love you, Scott. Uh, if you don't know Scott, by the way, hound this guy down for a coffee. He has got the brain the size of a planet, and he's so humble. He never pushes himself forward. He is so wise. So grateful for co-leading that group with you, brother. I'm going to miss you. But anyway, in our group, book group, we have many uh, other men there who are, who are non-Christians, who we dearly love, who have come and gone at different times. 
And one of the things we often end up talking about is the fact that in, in the academic world at the moment, there's a lot of positive views of the Bible. For example, a guy called Tom Holland, who's a non-Christian historian who wrote a book called Dominion. You've probably heard of it, massively popular. Um, what's that? Say again? Not Spider-Man. No, no, no. He's a different Tom Holland. Sorry. Very different. Um, uh, lovely guy. But he would say that the main sort of um, values of the Western culture that we live in, that most of us love, are all from the Bible. They've actually come from particularly the life of Jesus. The seven values that are often spoken about that he would say, he says that atheists swim in the river of Christianity. That the world that we live in is way more the sort of Christian than we even realize. The values of it. So for example, he would say freedom, equity, um, oh, the other E, E, I knew I'd forget. Oh, I I wrote them down, I wrote them down. I actually got proper notes today, look at this. I don't have to remember them all. Freedom, equity, enlightenment, compassion, consent, science and progress would all come, he would say, from an understanding of the Bible. I'm not a Christian, he says, but you can't understand the West without realizing it's come from this book. One great um, quote that John Mark Comer often says about the West at the moment is it wants the kingdom without the king. Okay, that's a great, that's a great summary. So we want the values. San Francisco is a great example of that. We love the values of Christ. We just don't want the authority of Christ in our life. Okay, third group would be, I would say, third group is yes to fidelity, Yes, the Bible has some authority, but partly. Um, And it's classically summarized as a liberal viewpoint. And liberalism, which is not new, has new kind of like, you know, figures who who write often very well and articulate things very well. A good summary, John Stott, um, a a great theologian, said is, is it's this, is that Christ rules the church, so his authority rules the church through individual reason, conscience, experience, and the consensus of educated opinion. If you were to try and summarize, what's a liberal approach to the Bible? That would be a reasonable summary, I personally think. And often when you, you'll talk to someone who has more of a liberal um, approach to the Bible, they will see it as a, as a helpful literary tool that has good, great and wise teaching in it that... Um, that particularly can be interpreted in a multitude of different ways and would have a strong emphasis on like the metaphoric. So yeah, this is a good metaphor for, you know, would, would be tend to not be so much into like a literal understanding of parts of it. And would probably be happy to say that Christ was a, was a good and profound teacher. Um, but not necessarily that he is raised from the dead and the king of the universe. So that would be a very, very quick summary of a liberal approach. You know, this idea of how does Jesus govern his church? Where is his authority expressed? How is it expressed? Is it through the Bible or other ways? They would tend to say, well, Jesus governs his church. The authority issue is, yes, through the Bible, but through these other ways that I've mentioned here as well. Fourthly, I would say as those who are, yes, some level of fidelity, so these are Christians again, partly, but 
would be, um, wouldn't be in the classic liberal camp. And I have summarized, uh, or the, the three I'm just going to mention today are the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, and the Anglicans. Now, just to be really honest, or not honest, but to be really transparent, my family, my mum and dad are Anglicans, my sister's a charismatic Catholic, and my big brother's an Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian. And uh, I love you, family, if you're listening, and I feel a bit daunted talking on this subject. I think it's fair to say that the question of where, where does Christ, you know, Christ is the head of the church. How does he govern the church now? How does he express his authority to us? Is it just through the Bible or are there other ways? I think these huge expressions of Christianity, which I have huge respect for and love for, would say, again, yes, the Bible has authority, but only partly. I think that would be a fair description. It would, it would have some authority over the Christian's life alongside other things that if you're part of that expression of Christianity, you need to take equally as seriously, in some ways maybe even more seriously. So, for example, um, you probably know this, the Catholics would talk a lot about the magisterium, great word, which is, about, which is the teaching authority given to the Pope and to his bishops. So there would be a love for the Bible, but there would be a tremendous love for, for the magisterium, for the early church fathers, as not just interesting, but having weight and divine weight, more so than even the Bible. In certain, I mean, obviously, there's like a billion Catholics. So if you talk to like some, will, you know, some will, will probably go, no, 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 I, this is my authority. But officially, as far as I understand it, the Catholic Church would say, no, no, the authority, Christ's authority more than the Bible comes through the magisterium. Secondarily, the Eastern Orthodox Christian um, branch of Christianity, which my brother is uh, an excited new member of, came to Christ a year and a half ago, Again, they would love the Bible, but they would tend to talk about holy tradition, which includes the Bible, but also the creed, the seven ecumenical councils, the divine liturgy, which they would do every single week, and also many of the writings of the early church fathers. So again, it wouldn't be that the Bible is irrelevant, we, it's, 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 you know has no place, but its authority is... Um, I want to say diluted, that sounds bad, but you know what I mean. It's just one of many different sources of, of, of how an Orthodox Christian would, um, in faith, receive Christ's authority in their life. And therefore, of course, there is a, the point I'm trying to make is there's a slightly less level of fidelity. That's a terrible sentence. Sorry, Jackie. There's a lower level of fidelity. She's our author. Uh, because of, well, it, yes, it has some authority, but all these other things also does. Does that make sense? I hope this is helpful. Um, and then the Anglicans, pesky Brits. Uh, no, the Anglicans, I grew up an Anglican, and I have tremendous love for the Anglican Church. They would classically talk about the threefold chord of Scripture, reason, and tradition um, as the three ways that Christ expresses his authority. I would say this, and you can see where I'm going. One of the great weaknesses of the Protestant church, this is a Protestant church, by the way, in case you're wondering, um, and the strengths of these other uh, expressions of Christianity is that 
is that Protestant churches tend to be very monosensory, i.e. it's all about listening, not all about, this is an oversimplification, but it tends to be about listening to a sermon with your ears, right? And buildings are very stripped down. Whereas humans, we obviously have five senses. We can smell, and we can see, and we can taste, and we can touch. And one of the wonderful strengths about other expressions of Christianity, Catholicism, or Orthodox Christianity, or Anglicanism, is they are very good at thinking, how do we help humans know God in terms of what we smell, or in terms of the, what it looks like, or in terms of the feel of things, okay? That's why many actually love other expressions of Christianity, because it's very strong in terms of being multisensory. And I think one of our weaknesses, if I'm honest, is that we tend to just think about, you know, just what you're going to hear, really. It's an oversimplification, but you get the point. And then the fifth group uh, is, I would say, those who have, yes, fidelity to Scripture. It's not there. Oh, no. It does exist in my notes. Don't worry. The fifth one, the most important one in my view, is yet fully, is full fidelity to Scripture. And I think within that group, there are two broad groups. The first is those who would probably be like literalists or fundamentalists who would really strongly, you know, lean on the side of, well, if it says that, it literally means that. And I do think sometimes that is a very important posture of the heart. Sometimes I think, because the Bible is such a big variety of, of literary genres, that isn't always entirely helpful. You know, if you just shut everything down in a very sort of impassioned slash fear-based way, which I think can be the danger of, of that type of Christianity. The final group within the, the, the kind of fully, fully f- full fidelity group would, I, you could say, are uh, Protestant evangelicals are those who would believe in something called sola scriptura, which the reformers quoted, um, which basically is the Latin for scripture alone. It means that ultimately, although traditions are fine and helpful and good, ultimately it is about what the Bible ultimately believes. It is the, uh, what's the phrase? The um, scripture is the royal scepter by which Christ rules his church. I, th- I can't remember who said that. It might have been Luther. So that's, 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 that would be the, the group that sanctuary is, is in, is that we would, um, we would ha- attempt to have full fidelity to Scripture, but um, would also want to acknowledge that that doesn't mean um, a, always a purely literal interpretation of the Bible. And we'll get on to interpretation in just a moment. But I think broadly, those five categories kind of hopefully summarize roughly um, most people and and where people tend to land. And um, we'll hopefully have some explanations to why people don't have total fidelity to Scripture on a sliding scale. Secondarily, the obvious question then is, well, why, Tom, should we have full fidelity to Scripture? Particularly when other branches of Christianity... Um, that we know and love, don't have that same kind of Bible as, you know, as the Protestant evangelicals would. We've got to ask that question. And I think there's two reasons why I would humbly 
want to still argue for sola scriptura personally, although I think we can absolutely humbly go, oh Lord, there's so many great things you know, that we can learn from other traditions. I would personally want to argue today humbly but boldly for two reasons. Number one, Jesus. And this is my biggest point. Is like, what was Jesus' attitude to the Bible, to Scripture? And number two, Scripture's claims about itself. Okay? First of all then, Jesus. John Stott said this. The reason that we submit primarily to Scripture... Traditions are not all bad at all, but a primary place of authority, the reason we submit primarily to Scripture is because Jesus did. Jesus did. And he urged his followers to do the same. Jesus did, and he urged his followers to do the same. He goes on to say, the voluntary submission of the Son of God to the Word of God is of huge importance. So when you look at Jesus, the fact that he submitted to it is our number one reason why personally I ultimately choose to submit to it. It's a very simple reason, but it's actually often not thought about, to be honest with you. So how did Jesus submit to the authority of Scripture? Here's just a few quick examples. If you've got a Bible, jump to uh, Matthew chapter 4. This is one of the most well-known, wonderful bits um, that's so just powerful in how Jesus submits to, um, to, to the authority of Scripture. The temptation of Jesus, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. Now, you see here three times Jesus saying, It is written, it is written, it is written. It's all from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Now, I love reading the Bible in the year. I try and do it. Deuteronomy, woo, it's not always that easy, okay? So I love that little point that he's not even like, he's not even like in the juicy bits. I mean, it is. It is. Don't get me wrong. All of Scripture is God-breathed, okay? But there's bits of Deuteronomy where you're like, whoo, you know, you're trudging through a little bit. But Jesus doesn't see it like that. Do you see this? He doesn't see it. I was actually in a Bible study when we were just going through this passage and someone even said, it was their first ever time there. And they said, why does Jesus, if he was God, why does he keep on quoting the Bible all the time? I don't get it. Why does he even need to do that? It's almost irritating. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, why? Wow, that's a great point. Why, why do you think that might be? And the discussion came out. was like, well, I suppose he, he, he must think it's quite authoritative then if he's choosing to still use it as his defense. 
He's not just coming from his own internal authority. He's saying, it's written, it's written, it's written. That is huge, amen? I think that's massively compelling. Massively compelling. He says it, it, he's saying in, in his three replies, you know, he's like, oh, you must be starving. You know, um, make some bread rolls. And he's like, no, no, Scripture, what he's saying is, it's enough for me. I want to eat, I love to eat, but this stuff is like different type of food. And then he tries to use the scripture in the second temptation. You know, throw yourself off and he'll save you. And he's like, don't you do that. You're trying to twist and test God. What's he saying there? He's saying, no, no, the Bible's coherent. You're trying to confuse us with your ninja skills. And actually, no, 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 don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third time, when he's saying, oh, I'll give you all of this. Oh, if you just worship me. And he's like, no way. I'm worshiping the Father only. What's he saying there? He's saying the Bible is authoritative. It has authority over it. That's what my father says, and that's what, how I'm going to live. This is the Son of God submitting to the Word of God. And it's powerful. Secondarily, we see not just in these moments for Jesus, but in his very like vision for his life. It's been pointed out by guys cleverer than me that Jesus brings together to kind of summarize his vision for his life, two mega themes of the Old Testament. The first mega theme is the Son of Man. This incredible sort of mysterious figure, particularly in the book of Daniel, who's going to be reigning and ruling and powerful. And if you think, whenever you hear the Son of Man, it's like, he's, you know, you think power. That's what a Jewish person would have thought, okay? But there's also this other mysterious figure in the Old Testament, the suffering servant, Isaiah filled with his suffering servant. And Jesus uniquely brings those two together. If you want to summarize Jesus' vision for his life, it was, yeah, the Son of Man's here, but the way that he's going to get glory is through suffering. The way that he's going to get glory is not by dominating, but by dying. And he does this mind-bending thing that no one was expecting. He brings together this image of power, and regal majesty with this incredible picture of a suffering servant who was going to die naked, alone, on a cross. His whole vision for life was not from a paperback. It was from the scriptures. It was from these books that we often don't even bother reading, right? Sometimes, oh, it's a bit long. You know, and he's, no, this, this is everything to me. I'm not reinventing something. This is a plan that before God made Jupiter... We came up together and we were speaking about it and whispering about it. And I'm living in these books and I'm here. And my very identity is bringing these two glorious books together. Hallelujah. Oh, it's so wonderful. Third thing in his life was not just his vision for life, but his compulsion. Do you see the energy of Jesus? You ever pick up on that? You see these must phrases again and again. When, when people are trying to suggest different ways for him to live, Jesus was like, no, get behind me. The Son of Man must. The Son of Man must. The Son of Man must. There was this compulsion, this like pulsating power in Jesus' life. And it always came from his understanding of Scripture about himself. He wasn't, he wasn't finding energy in a different place. He got it from there in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. He says, the Son of Man must suffer. You know when that voice comes in, oh, your life should be more comfortable, Tom. Jesus was like, no, I know my Bible. (laughs) 
I know it's led up to me. And I, the Son of Man, strange as it sounds, he must suffer in certain ways. In John 12, 27, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Talking about his resurrection and ascension. And Mark 9:30, he says, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of his betrayers. Jesus was like, every single detail that has been written by all of these different authors leading up to my time, every single detail I'm going to fulfill. It matters to me. He was, a, he was a man of detail as well as passion and poetry and an artist. He was a man of detail. His compulsion came from his understanding of the authority of the Bible. It comes through again and again. So important. Fourthly, his constant debates. John Stott again uh, memorably said, Jesus Christ, above all else, was a controversialist. Now, that's a claim. I kind of like that. I think it's interesting. You may not agree. But what he's saying is, is that Jesus Christ was not this like, hey dudes, he was constantly in debate and discussion with the religious leaders of the day. He was constantly controversial to them. And the two main, the two main camps that you often see the Sadducees and the Pharisees, actually, the issues were really to do with their view of Scripture. If you think about it, the Sadducees, they subtracted from Scripture. Apparently, the Sadducees believed in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books. They didn't believe in the prophets and the writings, which is the other bits of the Old Testament. So if some idea that Jesus spoke about was not in the first bit, they rejected it. For example, the resurrection. <laughs> They were, oh, that's not in the first bit. It's not in the Pentateuch, so we're going to ignore it. And Jesus literally said to him, have you not read the Scriptures? Have you not read it? It's there. I'm now about to do it. Don't rip it out. It's a very important part of the Bible. So the Sadducees subtracted it. The Pharisees added. They were always trying to squidge in kind of uh, Scripture-like demands and traditions that Jesus was like, don't do that. You're adding, you're trying to add to the Bible. So for example, in Mark chapter 7, I think we've got it come up um, here, they start getting really angry with the disciples because they haven't washed their hands, okay, before their meal. And Jesus is like, where on earth does it say that you have to wash your hands before you eat a meal in the Old Testament? And apparently it doesn't. And he's saying to them, you have invented so many things. And he starts talking about something called Korban, which was another invention by them, whereby you spiritually gave all your money, you pledged your money to the church, and then you just left your parents without anything. And he's like, have, the Bible says, honor your mother and father. That's Bible. Korban, you've got, is this tradition that you think sounds great. It's not. <laughs> it's not from the Bible. It doesn't have authority. And he says these words that are actually true and kind of haunting and searching just as much now for us here in San Francisco. He says in verse 8, he says, you have let go. <gasps> you don't have fidelity to the commands of God and you're holding on to human traditions. And then, you get, and then verse 14 is more scary still. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down 
and you do many things like that. This is, if there is one point I want you to remember, it is this point. It is with respect why I am nervous about any religion or any expression of Christianity that puts traditions alongside the Word of God. This is it. And I'm a simple man. <laughs> and I'm really willing, and obviously, as I've already said, people I dearly love would, would love traditions. And, can I say this, not all traditions are bad. I am British, after all. We're into traditions. We like traditions, you know. Tradition isn't bad. I'm not saying that. But here's the thing. If there is a, a subtle tradition, and it can be a mindset, could be consumerism, could be individualism, it could be just an assumption about the love of God that means that we kind of, oh, we reject certain parts of Scripture that actually are just there. Holiness as well as love. So the question for us to write down, if there's one thing we write down, is what are the traditions that we might have that potentially could nullify the Word of God. What are the kind of unconscious things that you hold really close and I hold really close that could mean we actually hold that view closer than the very words of God? Now, one of the other interesting things about Jesus, he never, ever, if we have, if when we struggle with the, with the Bible, not once does Jesus say the problem is with the Bible. Every single time he says the problem is with, with us. He's saying that there are things in our hearts that mean we will struggle with bits of the Bible, but that our default needs to be that the Bible is trustworthy, good, and true, and that the issue is with us. For example, um, alongside that, in 2 Timothy 4.3, this is a scary prophecy as well from Timothy, or Paul to Timothy. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, there will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears will want them to say. <laughs> That's so scary, isn't it? Jesus' diagnosis of the heart is that the heart is the issue. It's the key thing. He says, for example, ignorance, traditionalism, naivety, Dullness, deafness, foolishness, opposition to God, fear, sin, stubbornness. When people don't understand something that God has said, Jesus assumes that the Scriptures are clear. Haven't you read the Scriptures? And that the people are muddled. Frequently in our arrogance, we assume it is the other way around. I think that's really true, certainly for me anyway. And Jesus' MO was like, this, this book is my authority. It is, it is the thing I live by. And there are going to be times when you need to understand that you're reading it with a heart and mind that's still really pretty broken. And so you're, gonna just, you're just going to need to humbly choose where is the ultimately is, is the issue. Do I, is the Bible untrustworthy? Is it, is it, is it something that's, that's not to have proper authority in my life? Or, or am I untrustworthy? <laughs> you know? And I, the older I get, I know which one I'm going to pick. Goodness me, the, the, the delusions I have in my life about the lack of sin, it's so humbling. 
the older I get, the more I see the judgmentalism in my heart. I see the pride, the greed, the fear, the anxiety. It's just overwhelming. How God sticks it out with me, I do not know, because it's so obvious to him. And then I, with that heart, try and read the Bible, and of course I struggle with it, and of course you do. But there is a, there's a kind of like, what is our default going to be, right? Where, where, where is it going to be? Is it going to be with the Bible with us? Um, so, Jesus. Um, let me just say this other quote by Andrew Wilson. The Bible has big, difficult, sticky questions. And engaging carefully with them is important. But if we start there, we risk ourselves immediately on the defensive. Instead, we need to see Jesus as the starting point. Ultimately, you see, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, King of the world, crucified, risen, and exalted. I d- this, is the, this is the key. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. Do you see what he's saying there? I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, and good, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. I love that. He's saying, ultimately, it starts that way around. What, what was Jesus' attitude towards the Bible? And if, if I say I love Jesus and, and, I, and I, I want to follow him, his voluntary submission to the Word of God as the Son of God has to be our posture. Amen? Well, I, I think so. I think it's compelling. But the second uh, thing I want to say on why we should have fidelity to Scripture, not just Jesus, although that's the big one, is it's just what the Bible says about itself. It kind of says, you know, knowing me is a really amazing thing. All right? It says it in loads of different w- ways. For example, the next slide. Um, Emily, thanks. So in, in 2 Timothy, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Next, next one, it says in Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's saying this thing is really like, wonderfully dangerous. <laughs> when you read it, I mean, again, I've said this so many times, but I'll say it again. My big brother, who at age 50 recently came to Christ, he's an incredible academic, brilliant guy, teaches at Stanford for seven years. He just reads the Gospel of Mark and gets chills. They're multiplying. No, he, he reads the Gospel of Mark and just sees Jesus. And he's like, why have I been told that Jesus is this like, nice guy? He's, not this not, he's terrifying in the best way. Like... Thousands of, you know, he casts demons out of one man and there's two, three thousand pigs get filled with demons and are bobbing around in a lake. That's terrifying. Just does that as one of his days. What? I mean, who is this figure? The Bible is so, it's so awe-inspiring because of who it's talking about. It's incredible. Amen? We just get so over-familiar with it. Can I say this? And this is, I really mean this. I think many unbelievers, many who do not have a Christian worldview, are yearning to get into the Bible. I'm having conversations with more and more friends and we're doing book groups and then they'll be like, let's just read the Bible. And there's just a hunger to get into the Bible. And I think at the same time, tragically, in the church, there is more Bible illiteracy than ever. 
I think so many of us assume we read the Bible, and actually what it means is we listen to podcasts, or we read blogs, and we kind of read the Bible a tiny bit. And you've got this paradox of so many, particularly in the academic world, who are fascinated by this ancient book to a new level. And then the church says, oh, I, I, don't know. I don't really know much about it, really. And I put myself in that category. I think the Bible is, <laughs> I think it's magnificent and incredibly disturbing, but in a good way, in a very disruptive good way. Uh, the Bible claims about itself, Psalm 119, uh, I'm running out of time, but just read Psalm 119. I mean, it'll take you a while, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it just claims about it. It says, your testimonies, uses all these different words for the Bible. You're, it's like saying, the Bible is my delight. They're my counselors. Who wants a good therapist? You all do, right? Or is it just me? I, it, Bible, therapists are great. God bless them. This book, if you just spend daily time with it, oh, it counsels you with a capital C. Changes your life. It's not... It's not like logical. It's just supernatural. It's living and active. Next one. My earthly life clings to the dust. I, I am depressed. I am depressed to my core. I am despairing of life. Revive me and, uh, and refresh me according to your... That's a massive claim and a massive promise. It's a promise. This book can change your most serious issues of mental health. I mean, I praise God for medicine. I, I, I'm, I'm open to it all. But this book, hallelujah, it does do something. I haven't got time to go through the rest of Psalm 19, but believe me, go there slowly and just take one at a time. I love when the new king or queen of England is appointed. What they always traditionally say is, and they give them a Bible. Do you know that? They give them a Bible and they say these words, this is the most precious thing this world affords. The most precious thing this world affords. And they give it to the king or the queen. Man, I believe that. I really believe it. Oh, and I tell you, a good friend of mine, much cleverer than me, he said, I think the biggest issue that we will face in our entire lifetime is the authority of Scripture. Because every other good discussion, debate, ultimately comes back, I think, so often to do we ultimately see this as a book, not just of interest, but of authority. Because if I do see it as having authority, I will have fidelity. I will have growing loyalty to it, even when I don't understand it all, or it makes me feel really vulnerable with my friends, or, or even confused, and can, dare I say it, healthily angry at God sometimes. Lament is a biblical expression. You can lament, kind of like vent. So it sounds like vent. Lament to God. Why? Why, God? Yes, do that. Use the words, if need be, to express your pain and your anger to God. The Bible doesn't say you've got to pretend everything's fine. Okay? At all. It gives you a wonderful bandwidth to be human. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, final thing then, and then I'll finish. How do we have fidelity? Two Ds to finish with. You know me bit of alliteration. We need to dive in. Say dive in. And we need to delight in. Say delight in. Okay, so there's a whole other talk I could do on interpretation. I just have not got time for that today. But how, you, uh, what I will say is this, super basic principles. Number one, always ask what type of literature, 66 books in this, in, this, in, this, in, this, in this library known as the Bible, what type of literature am I reading? Is it meant to be understood literally? Is it a historic account? 
Or is it poetry? Or is it wisdom? Or is it apocryphal writing? You can, there's thousands of resources. You can Google more than that. But ask yourself, number one, what type of, you know, use your brain. What type of literary genre is this? Number two, what did the original author want the original audience to originally know? That's such a helpful lens. Don't just see yourself as the hero immediately. Oh, I'm just like David too. It's not entirely wrong, but ask yourself, what, what was the original intent? Go there first as a discipline. And then what that does is it, uh, it, it, it leads us to do very wonderful questions. What does this tell us about God? And what does this tell us about people? Most sermons on a Sunday, we break into groups and ask that question. We haven't today. Those two questions are more profound than they sound. They are so helpful. Even this obscure passage tells me about God. It's like a satellite. Satellite phone, you know, up to the satellite and then down. Think of the scripture like that. What does this tell us about you, Father? Even buried deep in this obscure bit, bit of the Bible. What does this tell me about you? Oh, yes, you are merciful. Or you are holy. And then I come down to how it applies to my life. So interpretation is vital, but I'm trying to finish stirring your hunger, actually, more than anything. First of all, dive into the Bible. This is so simple. Can I just say, read it every day. I mean, that's a, that might be a tradition. Oh, no, I'm getting a tradition that I'm adding. But it's in there as well. It talks a lot about daily. On your, I would just encourage you, please, like, you know, um, t- do whatever's needed to just daily, you know, build that hunger. Sometimes you need to just discipline yourself because your hunger isn't there. It's a bit like with salad, right? I'm like salad. Oh, I do like salad. I didn't realize I didn't like salad. But eating the salad has, has made me like salad a little bit. Sometimes the word's like that, because our hearts are a bit broken. So can I encourage you to read it daily? Use your lips. Don't just read it internally. Speak it out loud. Faith comes by hearing, even when you're speaking it to yourself. Use, use uh, audio book Bibles, you know, where you can just have it playing. I remember growing up, Uh, One of my earliest memories is the Bible, is sermons in the Bible being played in my house and my dad shaving. Morning, Tom! And someone called Martin Lloyd-Jones would be thundering out a message on it. It was a cassette. Remember cassettes? And I I remember waking up hearing Romans. He spent eight years going through the book of Romans. Can you believe it? And uh, it felt similarly to me, waking up. (laughs) But just getting it into your household. Those of you who are parents, you know, just let the Word of God, even if we don't understand it all. Um, you have an enemy. Satan is a liar. Okay? So if you don't go, I've got to get this into me somehow, you are going to have the world, the flesh, and the devil lying to you. Your inner critic wants you to feel condemned and worthless and a pile of rubbish. Okay? Let alone the world, let alone Satan. So I'm being honest with you. You are not in neutral territory. You are in enemy territory. And this is your greatest friend. That's why Ephesians 6 finishes with this armor of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You have to have something of a military approach to the Christian life. Okay? You can't just be passive. You have to realize it's like being in a river that's going to carry you this way. It's not, just, it's not still. You have to start 
swimming upstream. And the Word of God wonderfully just will carry you um, in ways that otherwise don't. Secondarily, finally, delight in it. Delight in it. Um, what I mean by that is, you, you know, there's lots of brilliant Bible scholars um, in the world who, don't, who aren't Christians, who don't know God, um, who would know the Bible but would not delight in it, okay? So once you are convinced of its authority and you've done some element of kind of testing of it, I want to encourage you to develop a heart of enthusiastic faith trust in the promises of the Bible. And I know you're very clever, most of you. And I know we live in an age where we're very sort of, you know, put together and we, you know, enthusiasm can be seen as a kind of, you know, a childlike thing. But you, you, with the way, faith, trust, really does look like a certain way. Do you understand that? And I'm not saying, you know, don't, of course you must test it. You must think about it. But there's also finally, I would say, don't you want it written on your gravestone that that, that person just like spoke Bible? They lived Bible. You know, that it just came out of them. You know those kind of people who, who just tumble out? The Bible's just living and active. It's just in them. I want that for my life. I really do. And uh, one of the final the things I, I've never done before the last 12 months, and it's the most game-changing practical thing, I'm going to finish with this, of the way of reading the Bible has changed Tom's life. And I would just, you maybe do it already. In fact, Robbie referred to a similar thing when he talked about journaling. Let me give you a quick example and then we'll finish. Psalm 139, you probably know this. This is David speaking to God. Now, if I believe the Bible is authoritative, if I believe that I can trust that the Spirit wrote the Bible, then I'm going to, by faith, take the implied promises as well as the explicit promises, and start to speak them over Tom Shaw. Okay? Because no one else is going to do it. <laughs> I mean, my father's doing it, but, I, you know. Um, so it says this, for example. Let me demonstrate what I mean. This is David to God. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. My, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. This is how I would take that and, in my quiet times, uh, apply it to my life. This is me, like, talking to myself. Tom, he has searched you. And he knows you. Think about that, Tom. You yearn to be known a lot. You like to tell people about those problems that you're having. You like to leak just how challenging things are. It's not wrong, but your father knows you. He sees you. He searched you. And look, Tom, he knows when you sit and when you rise. Now, Tom, that's good news because this world's all about rising. It's all about work. It's all about activity and going. But your father sees also when you sit. He sees when you have a nap and you feel a bit guilty. And he, he sees it and he loves you. And he's given you sleep because he loves you and he wants you to rest. Tom, he discerns you're going out. Oh, and look, you're lying down. Can I have a hallelujah? <laughs> he discerns it. It's not, he sees it. And he loves you when you rest. He's familiar, Tom, with all your ways. 
You know, he knows you. Look, before a word's on your tongue, he's like, I know what he's going to say. He always says this. He's my boy. I mean, not many people can finish my sentences. Josie can a bit, but Jesus can finish my sentences. Oh, you know it completely. You hand me in. Such wonderful, such knowledge is too wonderful. Do you see the difference? Taking it and speaking it to myself. Not just agreeing with it to God, but agreeing with the Father's affection for me from the Bible. Not just making it up, but saying, Lord, what are the, prom- what are the legitimate promises of how you see a son or daughter of God? And how do you help me get it into my bones? Because I tell you what, just try it. Just try it. If you don't do that, just try it. It is dynamite. It is so life-changing. When you feel full in the mornings, you can actually give out. But if we spend our life constantly needing from others, it shapes everything. And I'm slowly learning. I don't know what the, uh, even the, I suppose it's just taking the promises of God and and applying them to myself, but it's life-changing. So, I will finish there. The Bible has one, Horatius Bonar said this, he said, Thy thoughts are here, my God, expressed in words divine, the utterance of heavenly lips in every sacred line.